0: so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn
1: more. Welcome to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
2: Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading
1: floor. Find the Bloomberg P&L Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Bloomberg.com.
2: Uh, well, Pim, uh, copper is just surging oh. to a two-year high and to get a little bit more of a sense of what's behind that, how much it's driving the shares of mining companies such as Freeport mcmoran shares up almost 15% yesterday, is Mike Dudas. He's partner and metals and mining analyst at Vertical Research based in Stamford, Connecticut. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. So why is copper rallying so much right now?
3: Lisa and Pim, great to be with you. Uh, I think there are four reasons we've seen copper rally strongly sp- for over the past couple of weeks, I think the first two were macro-oriented. You've seen the dollar reaching multi-month lows, which certainly has been beneficial. And you don't dismiss the, the oil rally we've seen over the past couple of weeks. You've seen a 3 to $4 move higher in crude. That's brought commodity fund money into the space, and I think some of that has flowed into copper. And relative to copper itself, uh, you're getting better than expected Chinese demand and data coming out of China, which is very important for copper. And finally, uh, there's been supply shortfalls throughout 2017. The miners, because of the lack of capital spending and the lack of exploration, have not been able to get as much copper to the market as think people have anticipated. I think all that's combined to allow copper to have a really good past the two, three weeks.
1: Do you really think it's set to continue, Mike? I mean, I'm looking at Freeport-McMoran, and we make a big deal about it because the stock goes to almost 15 bucks a share, but this was a yeah. $50 a share stock. Sure. You know, back when. Also, uh, I believe that there was a big strike in Peru having to do with copper mining and the strike is over. So maybe we get some more supply.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. So the, 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 when you have a strike in Peru, some people, in Chile, uh, miners in Chile are concerned. And if that gets over, Indonesia, which Freeport is very involved with, with some of the machinations there. Freeport uh, certainly was helped by the copper price move the last few days. But I think the market is starting to feel a little bit better with negotiations the company management of Freeport is having with the Indonesian government to try to settle that dispute on a new mining contract license for Freeport. This is like one them.
1: of the, I think it is the largest mine in the world world. Yes,
3: right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that uh, the, the market has been discounting pretty severely in the valuation of Freeport if they're going to get any value for that mine. I think uh, through yesterday's earnings release and conference call, I think Freeport and the Nation government seem to be getting a little bit better and, and more uh, discussions to to uh, uh, resolve that situation. I think that's also kind of helped the pop in, in Freeport stock. I do want to highlight, Pimba, if you look back in the historical heart of charts of copper, uh, we have seen for $4.50, we've seen much higher copper prices in the past. So uh, not not that we're predicting that here, but I do think there's some more momentum and room for copper to move higher as deficits, uh, the, the difference between demand expectations, supply coming to market, are looking to grow over the next few years because there's been a lack of capital spending, a lack of supply because of the uh, the, the down cycle we've witnessed the last few years.
2: You know, Mike, you gave a lot of possible reasons for why copper is rallying now. And I do just want to point out that the shares of Glencore and Newmont have also rallied uh, sure. on the back of the of the yep. pop in copper. But, you know, it seems like a pretty delicate balance. I mean, yes, it is an increase in demand, but that's one piece mixed with just general favorable uh, sentiment around commodities right now. So, I mean, yeah. do you think that this is a very fickle type of... Uh, figure that any and prices could fall substantially in the near yeah.
3: future i mean volatility i know everybody's been concerned about the lack of volatility in the overall equity markets but uh, certainly one thing we do uh, see in commodities is volatility yes the you know uh, a bad data point out of china or to this afternoon the fed minutes coming out which you know the a million people are going to read the tea leaves on you know the, the dovishness versus hawkishness could impact some of the near-term moves on on some of the commodities but i think generally expectations from investors over the past couple months in May, June were pretty negative going into Q2. We've seen rallying the commodity prices, and we've seen, you know, the reports from the companies being reasonably good, uh, you know, keeping the costs down, keeping the capital spending in check. I think that's given some investors reason to be more optimistic and some of the shorts to cover their positions.
1: Well, I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us. Mike Dudas is a metals and mining uh, analyst for Vertical Research uh, talking about copper as well as uh, some mining shares.
2: Indeed, the Federal Reserve is going to be finishing up their two-day meeting today. They are going to uh, give us some words of wisdom that we can parse over in detail for the next month as we await uh, their next missive. Uh, Ward McCarthy joins us now. He's chief financial economist at Jeffries & Company in New York. And Ward, before we talk about uh, what the Fed is expected to say today, which is, to be honest, not very much, I want to talk about some words of uh, some interesting words from President Donald Trump. Trump. Uh, He was speaking with The Wall Street Journal yesterday uh, and he said that he is considering both Gary Cohn, who is his chief uh, economic advisor right now, uh, in addition to Janet Yellen to uh, lead the Federal Reserve next year. This is going to be the next episode of the Fed chair. Uh, Gary Cohn, what do you think he would do as Fed chair? Do you think that it would uh, translate into a hawkish policy for the country?
4: Well, I think that that, – well, first of all, he's a big question mark because uh, we really have no history at all in terms of what his policy inclinations are. Uh, The fact that that, uh, Donald Trump uh, has been pushing him and also – Promoting Janet Yellen, in a sense, as being a low-rate Fed chair suggests to me that he may be less hawkish than uh, he is being um, expected to be, at least in some quarters.
1: All right. So, if that's the case, uh, then this is just—you know—you kind of spin these fantasies, right? You kind of say, "Well, (laughs) so what?" what,
2: what, Wow, wild fantasies. Well, but I mean,
1: but you can't. It's difficult to kind of pin someone down, obviously, if they don't know their views, you know. But Ward, is there anything? No matter who is the, the the central bank chief, is there something specific that you can point to that they should be doing that they are not doing?
4: Well. Janet Yellen is trying to do uh, everything that I think she should do at this point in the sense that she's uh, moving rates up to higher levels, although, you know, maybe not as quickly as uh, the Fed could. And she is also trying to get the troops in line here um, so they can start balance sheet normalization. But one thing that I don't think the Fed has focused a lot on yet that they're going to have to uh, in the not too distant future is that balance sheet normalization so far has really just focused on size and that is shrinking the balance sheet. Uh, And even in her last testimony, Janet Yellen acknowledged that the Fed wants to get back to a balance sheet that is all Treasuries, in other words, get rid of all the mortgages. And the plan that the Fed laid out on June 14th will not accomplish that. So the Fed's going to have to circle back and address this issue at some point.
2: You know, you bring up a really important point, and Ira Jersey, our own uh, interest rate strategist here at Bloomberg, was talking about the same point. In other words, uh, as we get more details from the Fed about their balance sheet normalization, we could see an undue amount of volatility in mortgage-backed securities. Uh, Do you agree?
4: Well, yeah. Well, I don't know what you mean by undue, but I certainly think we we should expect to see more volatility uh, in mortgage-backed securities. And of course, the caps that the Fed outlined on June 14th uh, are not necessarily binding, uh, and the Fed always adds the caveat that they're going to proceed um, and be data sensitive. So if they did not like the way things were unfolding, um, you know they could temper it somewhat.
1: I was going to say they could fold it back up. Uh, Ward, uh, what is about the? Let's talk about the U.S. economy for just a moment because uh, unemployment rates are low, uh, inflation low, growth well middling. Uh, is there anything that we need to pay attention to that we're not looking at?
4: <laughs> well, I think in some respects, maybe we, we focus on too many things, that, uh, and that can distract us from the drivers. All right, so good and-
1: point. Tell us what those are.
4: Well, I think that the primary things we need to focus on are really what, what the labor market is doing, because that's the heartbeat of the U.S. economy. And the labor market continues to do well. Uh, the one missing piece continuing to be a sustained increase in wage growth, which we would love to see because that probably would also boost uh, consumer spending. Uh, the other, But is that going to happen? It is going to happen. Uh, uh, It has been delayed this cycle for reasons that I think are uh, fairly numerous. Ranging anything from demographics to uh, immigration policy, um, but the laws of supply and demand have not been repealed. And uh, as we get closer to full employment and we see labor market conditions tightening, uh, wage growth is going to happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're you know every day we're closer. We just don't know how much closer we are on that front.
2: Ward, you know the Federal Reserve has uh, a number of mandates that seem to be floating. Uh, it was unemployment rates. Then it was inflation rates. And some people say it's asset price uh, stability or financial system stability. And I'm wondering, to what degree do you expect the Fed today to comment on the elevated prices in the corporate bond and the equity markets in the U.S.? I mean, we're seeing right now uh, the extra yield investors are demanding to own uh, investment grade corporate bonds in the U.S., plunging uh, to about the lowest in the post-crisis
4: era. Well, I, think, I do not think they will specifically address this in the policy statement today. And of course, there's no press conference either. Uh, but you make a good point, and that is that since the Fed has been raising rates and talking about shrinking the balance sheet, uh, financial market conditions have actually eased. Uh, and that is, spreads have tightened, stock markets gone higher, etc. And this should be a green light for them to continue uh, down the road towards normalization. The problem is, they also have two specific uh, policy mandates by law, one being uh, maximum employment, the other stable inflation. And the inflation picture since February has spooked them somewhat. So uh, I think that that has become or the inflation picture has been elevated from being kind of a nuance, uh, excuse me, a nuisance, uh, to something that is uh, interfering with their plans, at least temporarily.
1: Ward McCarthy, your thoughts on the dollar and recent dollar strength going to continue? We're at 116 against the euro right now.
4: Well, I, I don't think that we'll, we'll see any persistent dollar strength. I think what's happening now is that the dollar is trying to carve out a trading range. Uh, we've seen some pretty uh, s- substantial moves uh, in currencies over uh, recent months, in and, and large part because of uh, changes in uh, perspective. In perspectives on what's happening on the political front, and right now the U.S. political situation um, uh, is pretty murky.
1: Murky. That's a nice way to describe it. Thanks very much, uh, Ward McCarthy. He's uh, our, hes not a murky economist, but uh, he does put his finger on something there. Um, thanks very much, uh, Chief Financial Economist uh, for Jeffries. and I guess we'll just have to wait and see what the uh, what the minutes say. New diesel and petrol cars and vans, they're going to be banned from the United Kingdom from 2040 in order to tackle air pollution. This according to the UK government. And here to tell us more is Jess Shackelman, renewables reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from London. Jess, uh, boy, I got to say this kind of uh, is an interesting development uh, and it certainly must help uh, companies such as Volvo, which are looking to really go all electric or all hybrid.
6: That's right, there. Yeah, so I mean, I think if we just step back a little bit, diesel has really been the enemy over the last couple of years since the emissions cheating scandal with Volkswagen erupted. Um, and it's just become the target of air pollution campaigners as the thing that is causing the problem. But as you say, there's companies like Volvo, Nissan, um, BMW that are planning to Lots more electric models that, at the tailpipe, have zero emissions. So this is this is completely on track with with what they're planning to do. So Jess, how exactly
2: would such a ban work? So the UK says it will ban the sale of diesel and gasoline powered cars by twenty forty. Uh, this comes a couple of weeks after French President Emmanuel Macron announced a similar plan. The objective is to cut smog and become a carbon neutral nation. How?
6: So, what's, what's really interesting about this announcement today is it's sending a strong signal from ministers and, and the announcement two weeks ago in France that in, 20, in 25 years' time, 25 ish years' time, they don't want to have internal, engine, internal combustion engine cars on the roads. Actually, if you look at what the analysts say, we're probably not going to have many of those anyway at that point because the direction of travel for car makers like Tesla. Is towards electric. So Bloomberg New Energy Finance says that in the UK, almost eighty percent of new cars sold in twenty forty will be electric anyway. So you ask how this is going to be done. Well, I, I think probably the markets are already doing it themselves. Well, you know, but this is interesting
2: because in the
6: US, for example, we saw
2: unprecedented auto sales, and a lot of the autos that were being sold were uh, diesel fuel or not diesel, but uh, gasoline fueled cars and trucks. I mean, it was sort of going the opposite way of uh, electric vehicles. When
6: will we see that shift in consumer preference? There's this huge shift happening in the mobility market and are expected to happen over the next 25-30 years. And it's not really even just about changing the kind of technology that is powering your car. It's also about the uberization of of our transport system, people are going to be sharing cars a lot more, and there's going to be a lot more self-driving cars. So there's going to be there's going to be gigantic leaps that we can't even really get our head around at the moment in terms of how how they they drive cars. But the thing about the kind of fuels that people use is that actually in the UK where we have the largest diesel fleet in Europe people bought these cars in good faith thinking that they were environmentally friendly and then a few years down the line governments realized that that they were actually the complete opposite and they they were causing more damage to the air than and people's lungs than they thought
5: I just
1: want to ask you about the cost of all of this, because I understand that they, the government has said that they are putting aside uh, about $330 million or £255 million in order to help uh, councils, local councils, tackle emissions. Why do they need the money? I would think that people would need the money in order to get rid of their old cars that burn fossil fuel in order to go electric.
6: Yeah, it's not, it's not really a huge amount of money that, that they've put aside. So, um Yeah, what you're suggesting is that there should be a diesel scrappage scheme. And that's something that the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has asked for money for because, as you know, as I said, you know, people bought these diesel cars in good faith, thinking they were good for the environment. And the government doesn't really want to have to now penalise them and say, sorry, guys, you actually turns out you're doing a lot of damage to the planet and to people's health. So you know, you have to get rid of that car. So, that you know, they're helping that they've already put they've already set aside money for helping taxi drivers, black cab drivers, for example, to buy yeah. um, new black cabs. Um, but this the, this headline um, that we're talking about, the, the ban on on diesel cars is actually part of a much bigger air quality strategy that they've been forced to put out because. The government isn't delivering on its air quality plan and it's been taken to court twice by environmental activists and it keeps failing to produce a plan that is good enough for tackling nitrogen dioxide and just now this environmental group has come out again and said we still don't think it's good enough so there's still a chance we're going to see the government back in court for a third time. If, it, if they don't think this plan is up to scratch. Jess, uh, in the UK, plug-in cars
2: are still only about 1% of all vehicle sales in the country. Um, that's expected to grow to 80% by 2040, but what's the sort of threshold? What's the sort of tipping point at which we'll see a more widespread adoption of plug-in vehicles?
6: So I think the, the, re- the real key is, um, well, I guess there's two things. The main one is cost. If you turn up at a forecourt, um, and you want to be able to buy an electric car, you want to see that it's cheaper on the price tag compared to an internal combustion engine, and I think that's expected to help it happen about the middle of the next century. But the other issue people have is range anxiety, that their battery's gonna run out, and that's tied into having enough charging stations. And in the UK, in London particularly, there still aren't enough, and the ones that are there aren't really charging people's cars quickly enough. You have to you know, wander off for a couple of hours and come back, or they're broken. Yeah. Um, so that, that really needs to be sorted out before people feel confident enough to, to buy them and be able to drive long distances. Jess Schenkelman, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly a fascinating issue and it'll be interesting
2: to see what uh, legal parameters the UK and France put into play to try to achieve these targets. Jess Schenkelman is renewables and climate change reporter for Bloomberg News coming to us from London.
1: All right. Let's talk about technology. Let's get our Facebook out and find out what's going on with Facebook. We have Shira Ovide, our technology columnist, the Bloomberg Gadfly, which has that all fast commentary section. And you can follow Shira on Twitter at um, Shira Ovide. Uh, Shira, I was looking at the the details for Facebook. This is a company that's worth about $476 billion. Let's say $500 billion. <laughs> Rounding up. Yeah, right. Why not? I mean, they'll probably get there anyway. Um they had thirty billion in sales in the year, eleven billion. A third is net income. They were able to take a third of that and sock it away. And get this, the free cash flow is over twelve billion dollars.
0: Not a bad little business that Mark Zuckerberg no, has there. No, right?
1: and everyone keeps saying, "Well, you know, can it continue? Can it continue? What does Shira overday think?"
0: Well, I think that is exactly the right question, right? That if you look at what Facebook has done, basically from almost zero to one of the biggest companies in the world in five years and extremely profitable, it has been very amazing. But the, the big question, of course, as investors look at Facebook is how much more room to grow is there for a company that has grown so quickly in such a short period of time? And I, I mean, I think the, I agree that the short
2: term is pretty promising. The longer term is a question mark. Well, and just to give this some perspective, Facebook shares up more than 40 percent so far a year to date. Uh, I imagine we're also going to hear something out of Facebook about uh, displaying more news and sort of getting people out of their uh, particular bubbles and expose them to more ideas. What do you think is going to be said on that? I, I mean, this is a topic
0: that Mark Zuckerberg has been talking about for much of this year that he's been on this. I don't know. What do you what do you want to call it? Like a quasi presidential tour of the United States meeting with regular folks, <laughs> right, to to sort of try to understand um, people in the United States and how they use Facebook and how basically to make Facebook a a more hospitable place for people and communities and groups. And as you said, one of the biggest issues for Facebook is how to you know, get people out of their little self-contained bubbles and expose them to news or information or points of view that they might not have heard um, otherwise in their Facebook network. And that is a big topic for them. And look, that's a business issue for them, too, that if people feel like Facebook is this terrible place where I just um, hear people rant about, you know, Donald Trump or about Hillary Clinton, and then they don't like to use Facebook as much, right? That has business implications for Facebook.
1: I was going to say, then they just go use Instagram or WhatsApp, right? Yeah. <laughs> which are both uh, Facebook properties,
0: right? I mean, th- this is the sort of power of Facebook, yeah, right? I mean, come is on, that, I mean, you, you know, don't like here, Facebook. Here's, the, here's right. the example
1: that I carry around in my <laughs> yeah. head today: Boeing, which we talked about earlier on in the program, has a market cap of one hundred and forty billion dollars. If Boeing, if something happens to Boeing and they stop making planes, <laughs> everybody will feel it. Yeah. If someone pulled the plug on Facebook. I'm not sure everyone would feel it. There'd be another competitor that's got a $500 billion market cap.
0: I mean, it's a very fair point that you're right. The, the, it's the, a different world. Facebook does not make the most essential things in the world, but they it has 2 billion users. So well, there's yes. people who get a lot of value out and of Facebook. And those airlines
1: are going to probably advertise on exactly. Facebook. Exactly. And
0: right. And then it has millions of advertisers who try to reach customers on Facebook, including, right, probably Boeing and its well, customers.
2: I mean, conceivably, you could make the argument that Amazon doesn't produce much, although they do now. They're, incre- they're increasingly producing uh, more and more products. Uh, now, this company is going to report earnings and uh, expectations are extremely high. What could cause people some concern that Amazon is not going to crush everything in its sight, which is <laughs> basically what it's done so far? I, I I'm very confused about
0: how investors think about Amazon these days, because you you see this kind of back and forth where people, Amazon has been saying for about a year now that it's investing very heavily in its future, in in things like warehouses where it stores um, inventory and in buying movies and television shows for its video service, expanding in places like India, which is going to be this huge e-commerce market in coming years. And investors at times seem cool with that, And at times they freak out that profits are crimped because Amazon is spending a lot on these investments. So I'm not actually sure what will happen on Thursday when Amazon reports earnings.
2: Well, I mean, just looking at their shares, they're up uh, more than 40% so far this year. and it Just seems... like Facebook, huh? Yes. Imagine I that. mean, and you have to wonder, how much is this all just moving moving together? I mean, how much do these companies get sort of washed up in the technological revolution r- right, rather than their individual strengths? I mean, that,
0: that has been the sort of anxiety for from uh, that we saw in June about tech stocks, right, is that all of these tech stocks are a little bit crowded, that everybody's investing in the same handful of giant tech companies. And maybe there's a risk of kind of overcrowding, pushing up these stock prices to unsustainable levels and valuations. Amazon is one of these companies that, whose share value makes no sense on any kind of logical basis. It's trades at something like 60 times forward earnings or whatever. So that is not logical, but it has been that way for a very long time. And the Welcome company the continues. Yes. The it's company- been that way for a long time. Yes. Therefore, it should be fine. It should be fine. Or maybe it won't be fine. I don't know.
1: Well, here, you know, here's just a, a, a little factoid, right? You know, 20, 20th anniversary this year for uh, uh amazon going public they yep. went public in may of 1997 the price was 18 dollars a share and uh, today the shares of amazon are 1050 dollars, up more than 10 and a half bucks
0: again not a bad little business no, that jeff bezos has built for, for
1: himself um uh, uh, twitter can you just give us a, a hint about what we should look for with twitter are they actually figuring out how to make money
0: no they They're not figuring out how to make money. (laughs) She was pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) Twitter right now is in basically a a a canyon of sadness of its own making. So it's, it's stuck in this rut where it sort of stagnated on the number of people using Twitter and only recently has sort of slowly started to add more people who are using Twitter. The problem is that has coincided with a pretty dramatic decline in the company's revenue from advertising. And the company has basically said that's not going to get better probably until next year at the earliest. So you have the situation where uh, this is a, a company that is adding users, but not that quickly. Uh, its top line is shrinking. It has It is unprofitable and continues to be unprofitable. And so, you know, right now, Twitter seems kind of stuck. Wow. Maybe they'll be left
1: off the like tech that, a train. Canyon of sadness. Yeah.
2: Oh, Shira Ovide, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, canyon of sadness <laughs> on uh, this Wednesday. Shira Ovide is a technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. You can find her work on ni gadfly on the Bloomberg as well as bloomberg.com slash gadfly.